Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's call. It is now my pleasure to turn the conference over to Mr. Steve Orleans. Please go ahead, sir. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's Steve Orleans. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, but I guess if you don't know that, you probably shouldn't be on this call. Um, we just completed uh, a, a very interesting meeting uh, between Xi Jinping and President Trump in Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, we've got with us today two of the best possible commentators on the meeting. Uh, we've got Michael Green, who is now Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at CSIS and Chair in Modern and Contemporary Japanese Politics and Foreign Policy at Georgetown who also, as you all know, was on the National Security, was the Senior Director for Asia on the National Security Council. And we have Evan Medeiros, who now leads the Eurasia Group's Asia-Pacific practice. And he, of course, was, on the, was the Senior Director for Asian Affairs at the, National, at the NSC uh, during the Obama administration. Mike, of course, was during the George W. Bush administration. I'm going to ask each of them to comment for about seven minutes on this, the meeting, and then um, we'll have a discussion. Then we'll open it to questions from those on the call. But, Evan, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your time. But why don't you kick it off? Great. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Steve and everybody on the call, I'd like to make three baskets of points. First, a general overview on the summit. Number two, talk about the economic relationship. And three, about North Korea. In terms of the overview, uh, I think that the major Western media narratives that Syria derailed or overshadowed the summit and that the summit was a failure because there were no tangible outcomes, both are inaccurate. I think the uh, Xi-Trump meeting was very effective at establishing a personal rapport, getting both leaders invested in the U.S.-China relationship. It provided an opportunity for them to outline their strategic interests and to set up mechanisms and processes for addressing them, trade and North Korea being the most obvious ones. Uh, there were no big gaps. Trump didn't have any confrontational outbursts. By all accounts, he was a very gracious host, which suggests that Trump is looking at the U.S.-China relationship not in zero-sum terms, and he's actually trying to build a positive, constructive relationship. Uh, in his own words, he talked about tremendous progress and outstanding meetings. And on balance, it looks like the globalists in his administration uh, are gaining uh, currency and influence over the nationalists. I think the big question coming out of this meeting is whether or not this can be sustained when this approach, uh, as exhibited in the summit, hits the reality of Chinese behavior. In other words, in the future, and I'm talking about sort of late third quarter, early fourth quarter of this year, is Trump going to be willing to confront Xi and China when the Chinese underperform on trade and North Korea? I think that's the big question. Has this summit put the relationship on a more stable and constructive trajectory? Uh, and I have questions on that front. It's very interesting to me that there was very little discussion of Taiwan or South China Sea. Interestingly, even in the Chinese readouts, and I'm talking about the Chinese uh, vernacular version of Xinhua People's Daily, very little discussion about Taiwan or the South China Sea. And it's interesting that she didn't go hard on either one of those. On the Syria issue, Syria did not derail the meeting. The fact that Trump, uh, according to Secretary Tillerson, gave Xi a heads up 
after dinner on Friday as the strikes were taking place. Um, I think is useful and makes it less of a, a personal affront to Xi. And the fact that there was very little Chinese media coverage of the strikes um, and the fact that they happened while she was there means it was very easy for the Chinese to portray a very successful visit where, importantly, not only was she treated with respect, but as an equal partner of the United States. Now, of course, after she left the United States, the Chinese you know, took the safeties off their guns and totally unloaded on the serious strike, characterizing it as an effort by a weak leader to consolidate his strength at home. But nonetheless, um, I don't think it had much of an influence. And similarly, I don't think it had much of an impact on the North Korea conversation, because while it shows that Trump is willing to use force, the Chinese know that striking Syria is a radically different proposition than striking North Korea. Um, in terms of the dialogues, I see the new dialogues, the four new dialogues they set up, as largely cosmetic changes. All of them existed before. The one big difference is the fact that they've now split what used to be the strategic and economic dialogue into the diplomatic and security dialogue and the comprehensive economic dialogue. And the latter, the comprehensive economic dialogue, is now not just led by Treasury, but both Commerce and Treasury, suggesting that it's possible that um, macroeconomic issues may not have as he heavy a weight in that conversation. Um, it raises the question, what happens to the JCCT and what happens to Lighthizer? What role is he going to have? And then sort of lastly on my overview piece, um, Trump invited, I'm sorry, she invited Trump this year. Uh, the natural time for him to go would be after um, or before attending APEC or the East Asia Summit if in fact Trump decides uh, to do that. If not, uh, we're looking at a trip in uh, 2017. In terms of the economic relationship, I was not particularly um, reassured by anything I heard because basically they kicked the can down the road. There was a greater emphasis on process over substance, and I worry about a substantial misalignment of expectations uh, on both sides. The fact that there was an announcement of a 100-day action plan is interesting, but all that means is that we now all have to wait 100 days to figure out whether or not the gap between expectations on both sides can be bridged. It's interesting to me that there was almost no coverage of this 100-day action plan on trade and investment in the Chinese media, and that makes me wonder whether or not the Chinese are taking it as seriously as the U.S. does. Uh, the reason I believe that expectations are misaligned is because what the U.S. wants is not what China is willing to give, and what China wants, the U.S. is not interested in giving. And specifically, Trump understandably wants systemic changes to facilitate more access to uh, key manufacturing and service sectors uh, in China. Um, what the Chinese are willing to give are sort of bits and pieces. Uh, they're not willing to, it doesn't appear that they're willing to really give that much. So selling more beef uh, to China is great, but the Chinese have promised that five or six times before, and of course they just gave that to the Australians anyway. And then on financial services, that's been out there for a while, um, but that doesn't really address the Trump concern about um, the desire for uh, major changes in access to manufacturing uh, and services. On the economic side, it's quite interesting to me that there was very little coverage or discussion of currency. So the question is, is, is that sort of receded from the economic side of the agenda? Um, there was very little discussion about excess capacity or even Chinese dumping, uh, which raises the question about how those will be addressed in the 100-day plan. We know that um, 
uh, USTR designate Lighthizer is very concerned about those issues. Those, those are part of his argument that there are systemic distortions in the Chinese economy that need to get addressed. And then, of course, technology issues, cybersecurity and uh, access to China's ICT sector. Um, the Trump team seemed to only mention these in passing, but of course, in the business community, there are enormous concerns. So how are those going to play out? And in the last minute I have, let me just finish up on North Korea. Fundamentally, I do not think that the U.S. strikes against Syria will make Xi more willing to work with the U.S. to ratchet up pressure on North Korea. They might help on the margins, but it doesn't fundamentally change uh, China's calculus. Uh, of course, the problem that the Obama administration had was that Chinese thought that Obama, because he was too sort of balanced and rational, would never use force. I don't think that the Chinese have that same concern about Trump, and if they did, um, then he eliminated that with striking Syria. And so he was able to demonstrate he's willing to use force, but the Chinese know full well that striking a remote air base in Syria with a, um, uh, when Syria is unable to fire back is not nearly as risky or as consequential as hitting North Korea. Um, so uh, what's interesting uh, going further is the fact that Trump and Xi's discussion on North Korea did not seem to make any progress. Both sides reiterated their position and dug in. The Chinese were very clear that they're sticking for the freeze for freeze proposal. The U.S. and South Korea should freeze their military exercises in exchange for North Korea freezing their nuclear uh, and missile programs. Uh, and then, of course, Trump and Tillerson in their public comments basically said, look, we understand this is difficult for China. If they're not willing to help us, we're, we're willing to go it alone. So I think raises the question of where are we headed on North Korea because there was no apparent uh, progress made. And then lastly, I think where we're likely to see the administration go is just continually ramp up economic, diplomatic, and military pressure. And the recent deployment of the USS Carl Vinson, the carrier task force, uh, is an example of that. I don't think the administration is, a, on the, uh, is about to take a strike against North Korea, but I think they do want to send China and the region a signal that they're very, very serious um, about um, the growing North Korean uh, threat. So with that, let me stop and turn it over to Mike Green. Thank you. Thanks, um, thank Evan. You. Yeah, thanks, Evan. That was a good overview. I, I think I agree with almost all of it. Um, going into this summit, I think there was more uncertainty about what the outcome might be than we've had, well, I mean, for the entirety of the Bush and Obama administrations. Um, uh, I planned for and was in a lot of summits for President Bush, Evan for President Obama. Um, there was deep concern in places like Taipei and Tokyo that this summit might end up with a new uh, reconfirmation of what Xi Jinping has proposed uh, for U.S.-China relations, a new model of great power relations, uh, which would have um, uh, effectively demoted Japan and other allies. Taiwan, people were worried that uh, Taiwan would become a bargaining chip. Um, there's no evidence that that happened. Uh, on the other hand, you know, this summit could have turned out like the phone call with uh, Prime Minister Turnbull of Australia or interactions with the Mexican president, you know, outright confrontation and embarrassment. And it didn't go that way either. So it came out, you know, pretty well. I think in part because both leaders are constrained by domestic politics right now. Um, president Xi uh, cannot afford a distracting fight with the U.S. going into the 19th Party Congress later this year where he has enormous pressures to um, 
determine or opportunities to determine the new leadership of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, where the beginnings of um, reform and control of the PLA uh, under a new um, uh, plan begin. And Donald Trump has, if you've been reading the newspaper, a whole lot on his plate, including uh, sagging polls and um, uh, debates within the White House that he's trying to, it appears, get under control. So neither side could afford a distracting uh, confrontation, uh, but neither side could afford to look weak. Both um, essentially have a, a nationalistic uh, narrative they had to sustain. So given all of that, it came out not too badly. Let me start with North Korea, where I actually think um, the administration, the president, did pretty well. Um, I think in contrast to economic uh, issues or other issues, um, there's probably more consensus within the White House and the administration about North Korea uh, by far. Um, and I thought the uh, Evan characterized the Syria strike uh, correctly. Um, but I think um, the president probably did himself well. I don't know why the Syria strike happened exactly. I don't think it was because of Xi's visit. But I think the demonstration of, um, of willpower was important because, as Evan pointed out, the Chinese line is that the U.S. and the DPRK should each freeze. Um, as Wang Yi, the foreign minister, put it a month ago, the U.S. and the DPRK are like speeding trains heading towards each other, which if you've worked on this North Korea problem over the past 15 years, as Evan and I had, is r ridiculous and frustrating. The problem is North Korea. And by emphasizing repeatedly with a fairly consistent uh, narrative that the administration is prepared to go unilateral, I think that was important. And uh, Evan's right, a strike like the Syria strike with cruise missiles or or more against North Korea's missile or nuclear facilities is, is unlikely and extremely dangerous. But there are other things the U.S. can be doing that I think the administration is prepared to do. We could, for example, increase interdictions of shipments of um, nuclear and missile and proliferation-related materials. Um, there's the option not of attacking a nuclear facility, but of shooting with Aegis missile defense systems, North Korea's next uh, long-range missile uh, out of the sky. Um, the Congress is already preparing, and I think the administration's getting ready for um, increased unilateral sanctions, including possibly secondary sanctions against Chinese firms uh, or individuals that are helping North Korea get around UN sanctions. Um, and then there's missile defense, where the Chinese have put enormous pressure on Seoul not to accept the U.S. Uh, terminal high-altitude area defense FAD system. So um, there's a, a bunch of things short of force that I believe the administration is signaling and signaling convincingly it will do. It's not going to solve the North Korea problem, but I think it does increase the prospects for getting China to move more on specific interdictions and sanctions implementation, which is, which is probably good. On economics, I think the administration went in with Actually, I was surprised that they reached consensus on the structure of economic dialogue because I don't think there's much consensus at all on the strategy. There are at least four or five centers within the administration that think they control China's strategy. And they managed to come together to agree on the formula for dialogue, but I don't think there's a consensus on the content. Um, breaking up the strategic and economic dialogue, we'll see how that works. Um, it had its downsides. Uh, the new four baskets of dialogue make sense. Um, what you don't have right now um, to address cross-cutting issues 
is the kind of dialogue I was involved in with Bob Zelik with his Chinese counterpart, Dai Bingguo, to look at these issues Evan mentioned, energy, um, security, uh, the environment, um, uh, geopolitical issues. That was a very effective dialogue. There's no, it's not clear to me who on the U.S. side is capable of doing that. Perhaps more importantly, who on the Chinese side is capable of doing that since Dai Bingguo left. I also think uh, the economic strategy uh, is particularly weak uh, because there's no um, offensive plan. There's no plan for dealing with market barriers within China. It, you know, the administration's been kind of uninterested in the bilateral investment treaty or um, other moves that would deal with the enormous obstacles to investment within China. Um, so I think there's some some unresolved uh, ideological differences the fact is, Evan mentioned that there's no U.S. trade that rep, that Lighthizer isn't there as big. My guess is he'll focus more on uh, countervailing duties for dumping of steel or WTO cases against China, which, frankly, the Commerce Department is not equipped to plan for. And so that element of U.S.-China economic relations didn't come out very much in this meeting, but it probably will. Two last uh, brief things. Um, it, it was noteworthy that Secretary Tillerson said that the president noted that American values are an important you know, basis for our engagement with China, but it's really uh, a pretty dramatic change to have a president who, it appears, does not raise uh, issues at a time when civil society space in China and a whole host of issues, including Tibet and Xinjiang, are, are going downhill, not getting better. It's just not in the playbook for the administration. I suspect they're going to be pressured and have to do it at some point and raise it and in a public way and in specific issues. Um, it would be better if they started the dialogue um, now, but it appears they haven't beyond very broad mention that we do have a foreign policy based on democracy. And finally, uh, Evan mentioned Taiwan, the dog that didn't bark. Um, I, it, I'd be interested in Evan's view. It must have come up. Um, for one thing, the Chinese uh, must know that the U.S. is planning a, uh, an arms sale uh, package to Taiwan. It's about that time. It could be considerable. But also the, main, uh, the Taiban, the Taiwan Affairs uh, uh, bureaucracy in Beijing, is, is deeply worried that Tsai Ing-wen is moving uh, towards de facto independence. So I, I can't believe that didn't come up, and I think it will be a bigger feature going forward than we saw on the summit. Thanks. Terrific. Um, let's start with uh, North Korea and the and the, um, and the strike in Syria. Do you both agree that the timing when they were having dinner um, was dictated that that the fact that they were having dinner when the strike was launched is what dictated the timing that they could have waited twenty four, thirty six, forty eight hours, um, and that they wanted to deliver a message to Xi Jinping? Um, I, it's Mike. I, I don't know. The, the decision-making process for this administration is really um, not anything like what Evan and I experienced. Uh, well, I'll speak for myself. Anything I experienced, it is starting under um, National Security Advisor um, McMaster's to look more like the kind of policy-making uh, and decision-making process that I saw. Um, I, I do, I doubt that said, I doubt that this was, um, timed, um, for the, uh, for the, for the summit. And, and the reason I say that is, 
and Evan's seen this as well. Um, you know, McMaster's, uh, Mattis, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, these are very, very experienced and professional warfighters. And they would not, you know, put a military uh, deployment or, or order uh, or strike um, on a political timeline when there's so many important other issues, including um, not only things like the weather, but, you know, lives and security of our personnel and so forth. I doubt it was timed. What I think probably happened was, and this happened on our watch, a, a military um, uh, decision, an operational decision was made, and the National Security Advisor said we should not change it uh, because of the summit, which is a different thing than than saying that perhaps it was time to uh, to, to somehow intimidate or impress uh, President Xi. Evan, you agree with that? I do. I, I agree with Mike 100%. Uh, having been in these decisions before, um, I think in this particular case, Trump probably said, let's do it, and let's do it as quickly as possible. And as Mike said, somebody may have said, hey, this is going to overlap with Xi, and they decided, okay, you know, if we delay it because of the Xi dinner, somebody is going to ask the question at some point, did you delay this because of the Xi dinner? And if you don't have a really good, compelling answer to that, then you just create a huge problem for yourself and you reinforce the Chinese instinct that you are willing to pull punches not to, you know, to avoid embarrassing them. I think the fact that Trump, to his credit, pulled Xi aside after the dinner and told him about it meant that at a person-to-person level, uh, she knew that Trump was doing this so she didn't feel embarrassed and that she can go back internally and say, hey, he gave me a heads up, he explained what was, you know, why we were doing this, etc." And so I think that uh, that's quite important. So I, I think the bigger question really is, um, does the Trump administration believe that this action is going to fundamentally change the Chinese calculus? And that, on, on that, I don't know what the answer is. As I said, I don't believe it has changed the Chinese calculus at all, um, but we'll see. Was the was Trump's informing him when the missiles were had already been launched, but before they hit? So it was kind of, or was it before they were launched, or was it after they hit? Which this is Evan. Me, so yeah. my, my understanding is. The Trump administration decision was uh, they get launched, then they start informing everybody, not just the Chinese, just everybody across the board, you know, Russians, allies in the region, etc. Um, and and that so included the Chinese, Xi at dinner. So it was before correct. they hit, but after they were launched. Correct. Correct. It, it, I mean, he informed him at 8.40 p.m. Some of them may actually have hit their target at that point. I don't remember the detail. I think the important thing is that it was a leader-to-leader contact to maintain the sort of the semblance of a constructive relationship. Um, and what was interesting is, according to Secretary Tillerson, uh, Xi Jinping's response was, "Well, I understand why you did this, given the f- given that they went after you know the Syrians um, had targeted children." That that's interesting. I you know I don't know how accurate it is. Um, I don't know if Tillerson was in that conversation, but if Xi Jinping said that, that's sort of an interesting insight into Xi. It doesn't strike me as particularly Xi Jinping, but yeah, what 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 Tillerson said is he heard somebody told me that was the response. I see. As opposed uh-huh. to he heard. In other words, the quote is 
she expressed an appreciation for the president letting him know and providing the rationale and said, as it was told to me, and it's funny, indicated that he understood that such response is necessary when people are killing children. Right. So, uh, But now Tillerson has now said that it, it does let the Chinese know that we're prepared to act unilaterally. So even if the timing wasn't dictated by the dinner with Xi, they're getting it as an ancillary benefit of giving a message to the Chinese. I guess we all agree that that's the case. Yeah, I do. I think that's right. Right, right. And, and again, to emphasize the point that Mike made, Steve, you know, if you if you don't do it and wait until afterwards, having to explain that ex post facto is, is bad as a policymaker because, you know, as Mike said, there's never a perfect time to do this stuff, whether it's a military exercise or any many military activities that touch on different relationships. So you sort of just have to do it when it's ideal for the military operation and just manage the rest because, you know, you, you can never account address every different concern that comes up. When Tillerson was in Beijing, he used the Chinese terminology, non-confrontation, no conflict, mutual respect, and always searching for win-win solutions. That language was not repeated uh, at the summit. Is that meaningful? Go ahead, Evan. Uh, I think it was. Um, I think it was probably fairly deliberate. Um, given the fact that the administration got a lot of criticism for doing so, it, and it raised questions um, with U.S. allies. So I think that's probably the case. The fact that it was in neither the official readout or in the Mnuchin-Ross-Tillerson press conference, I think is significant. Um, you know, there's some commentators that referred to Tillerson's comments in Beijing as, quote, a rookie mistake. Uh, I think if that's the case, they figured, okay, let's just, um, use this as an opportunity to fix it. And so that's my interpretation. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I, I may have been one of those commentators who said it was a rookie mistake. You know, the Secretary of State is um, is not staffed up. And uh, in reports already somewhat isolated from his own um, experts within the State Department. And I didn't think the win-win positive outcome process points were – uh, catastrophic, but I did note that, that Evan, they were not good, and and, uh, and almost no one in the in the reaction afterwards thought it was a good idea to use, um, you know, the Chinese um, descriptions of U.S.-China relations. We've almost never done that because, it, you know, they have a different history and a different meaning in a Chinese context. And I think Tillerson was probably on his own trying to be helpful and positive, but um, uh, backed away from that. And, you know, the tone of the relationship, the way they described it, though it wasn't very precise, I thought was not bad. Um, this was not yeah. some grand bargain, some fourth or fifth or sixth communique. This was a business-like approach, and I thought the administration on, on, on those uh, terms, um, you know, hit it about right in terms of the tone. As Evans pointed out, there's not much they've solved, but what chance was it, was it that they would solve anything in this first encounter? In your experience, you think it's possible that Tillerson used this language without White House approval when he was in Beijing? Well, I, you think I, he was out there on his own? No, I think That's Matt Pottinger. Yeah, I think Matt Pottinger, the senior director of Asia, was with him, right, Evan? 
Um, Correct. As with, Susan, exactly right. as with yeah. Susan Thornton. Yeah, the Susan. Um, I, you know, now we're in the realm of of rumor, of rumor, rumor-based intelligence, but. Um, it appears that none of the advisors around the secretary thought it was a good idea to use those terms. Um, so it, he, it sounds like he did a bit of an audible, and as Evan pointed out, he, he backed off and, and, and you know, it appears to have decided it's better not to use, you know, the Chinese terms for the relationship since we don't completely control how those are interpreted. Didn't he have? Didn't Tillerson have a handwritten letter from the president when he went and visited President Xi? Huh, interesting. Steve, this is Evan. I hadn't heard that. I think with the, the broader point that... I'm fairly certain, I'm fairly certain he did, and it okay. was so interesting, but this language wasn't cleared with the president or the National Security Council? Seems Look, maybe I, they I think, backed off, but it seems it's hard to imagine that Tillerson was out there on his own. I, I uh, think the broader before, point... I'm sorry? Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, he has been before. Um, he's He's a man of great experience. Um, and actually quite deep knowledge of China. He's quietly butted heads with Beijing when he headed ExxonMobil over South China Sea drilling and so forth. But he has um, gotten out there and stated things or formulated things which were um, which were his own uh, formulation. Uh, for example, in the confirmation hearings when he said we would blockade um, the uh, Chinese right. airfields in South China Sea. <laughs> um, so I don't, know the, I don't know exactly what happened this time. What is clear is um, they're not using that line anymore. Uh, Steve, this is Evan. I think the broader point here is every administration in the beginning, because the process is not set and the personalities haven't sort of um, managed their relative power relationships, every administration makes mistakes at the beginning. Uh, the question is, do they recalibrate and do they create a process that, uh, that uh, creates more consistent policy, both in public messaging and in actually setting priorities. And the fact that they seem to be trying to recover from that, you know, the, the Tillerson statement, and that they're now creating dialogues, uh, you know, is an important step. They're beginning to create the edifice of good China policy. Now, we still have a long way to go, right? We're only, you know, we're not even 100 days into this. Um, but nonetheless, let's see, you know, whether or not they can maintain consensus on North Korea policy, generate more consensus on economic policy, and actually uh, affect change in Chinese behavior. You know, again, I think the real question is, are we on a trajectory in which um, uh, the U.S. is able to elicit more and better cooperation from China? And I think that's, that's the big question. Did you expect more deliverables, specific deliverables, given that President Trump talks about being a, a uh, you know, not so much a philosopher, but wanting real deliverables in these discussions with foreign leaders? We, that kind of it's all it was all process with little substance. Uh, I personally was not. I was not surprised. Um, if the Trump administration had asked me, you know, of course they didn't. Uh, I would have said, don't focus on deliverables because. Um, that's not what this meeting is about, but you need to have a serious conversation about strategic priorities, and it's useful to get specific. Um, you know, what I didn't hear in the readouts was whether or not Trump shared his views of what his domestic priorities were and asked she what his were. That was one of the most important dimensions of President Obama's conversations with she at Sunnyland, was really getting the details of sort of how she sees the future of China and what he's going to pursue. And I can remember 
that conversation in June of 2013, many of the comments she made were precursors to his much more robust articulation of a reform plan in November of 2013 at the third plenum. Um, so if that conversation didn't happen, and I don't think it did because they just didn't have a lot of time, uh, I think it's a lost opportunity. They did have a quasi-deliverable um, in the form of this 100-day plan for reducing the right. bilateral right. trade deficit. Uh, and I think that was the minimum that the White House had to deliver um, to its own base. Um, and based on the president's promise, you know, that he'd immediately, you know, stop China from, he used a lot of uh, words I won't repeat, a lot of verbs that are uh, not for a family audience, um, but what China was doing to us on trade. Um, I, gosh, 100 days, they're going to come up with milestones. Um, I think, you know, in 100 days, there are going to be a lot of stories about what happened to the 100-day plan with China. I think that's going to be very hard, and it's premised on, the idea that a bilateral trade deficit is what really matters. Um, China could address some of the issues we uh, talk about, and production can move to Vietnam. It's not necessarily coming back to the U.S. in some of these areas. In other areas, the real answer is um, opening up uh, the Chinese market for more investment, financial services, which they don't have a concrete plan for. So they have a deliverable, and it's a promise to have a deliverable in 100 days, and we'll see if they get there. I, I think it will be um, I think it will be tough, actually, uh, when, uh, when, when Wilbur Ross and Mnuchin say it's going to be very concrete with milestones. It reminds me of the, the Clinton administration very early on promised to, in, a, in, a, in effect, targeted market shares with Japan uh, and so forth, and the Japanese side essentially slow-rolled them. We'll see what happens. Any low-hanging fruit there, Evan, that they can in 100 days – implement some stuff which could materially affect trade? So here's, here's I think, the issue is um, the U.S. wants big things, systemic changes. Uh, China's willing to give dribs and drabs. The things that China really wants, the big things, the ability to invest in U.S. infrastructure, the U.S. joining AI, the market economy status, and a bit, I don't think the administration is interested in. That's why I think expectations are misaligned. So, yes, it sounds like the Chinese are interested in giving things like beef access. But as I said, they promised that five times before and just gave it to the Australians. They promised to raise the equity cap on financial services, specifically securities and asset management. Okay, that's great, but that's probably not going to, you know, um, fundamentally change the U.S.-China trade deficit. Um, because the kinds of things the administration wants, as articulated by Ross, uh, Navarro, and Lighthizer, is a reduction in these systemic constraints on excess. So I think uh, what the administration wants are, you know, much bigger than the Chinese are willing to give. Um, And then the question becomes, are the Chinese willing to give unilaterally even small things to avoid trade action, or do they actually want something for it? So I think there's a there's a lot that needs to get worked out in 100 days, and I think it's going to be, you know, it's going to sort of come down to um, whether or not the Chinese are, are willing to give more in order to avoid uh, trade actions and how significant are the trade actions that the administration is really going to consider. I think on, I agree with that, Evan, except on infrastructure. 
I think that there is a, a, a confluence of interest between the Trump administration and Chinese investment in infrastructure, and that they really can find a way. And it's just, I mean, infrastructure is just tough in the United States, plain and simple for anybody. For a U.S. investor, it's tough. But $3 trillion of, of reserves gives the Chinese a lot of dry powder to invest in, in uh, U.S. infrastructure. And we see Chinese companies that basically have 2%, 3 4% Chinese workers on these projects and 96 to 98% American workers, and that fits right into the Trump administration. So I think infrastructure it actually can be some, some low-hanging fruit. I also think that unilateral actions by the Chinese are in the interests of Chinese consumers. And you can make a strong argument within China that that this is good for Chinese consumers and Chinese businesses. Um, so I think I think a hundred days they will be able to make some progress. I think it will be very limited, but there are some uh, there are there are some things which they can they can accomplish. Steve, I think those those are great points. Um, on the infrastructure piece, I think it really comes down to American politics. Um, you know, can the America First president say that we're going to, you know, turn over road, rail, bridge construction to Chinese capital uh, in part? Um, I mean, when the Obama administration looked at this, I mean, even having a European con- co- country invest in U.S. infrastructure, uh, it was a very, very controversial thing to do. So uh, hard for me to believe that. American politics at either the national or the state level would be open to that, um, but you know we'll have we'll have to see how it all plays out. Um, now, what about Trump's agreement to visit China uh, later this year? Was that a big deliverable, and what does that really mean for the next? It's got to be with. I mean, they agreed to do it in 2017, so within the next eight months, what's What's that going to do to the relationship? Yeah, so my understanding is what the Trump administration formally agreed to was to do it, quote, at an early date of mutual convenience, which means not necessarily 2017. The most natural time to do it would be either before or after APEC or EAS. Um, But here's the challenge. Uh, It's going to be in November. Uh, APEC is in Vietnam. EAS is in um, the Philippines. Um, so he could, Trump could either go to China first and then APEC and EAS. The, the thing is, though, if he goes to China, he's not going to just go to China. He would have to go to Japan. And then the question is, if he goes to Japan, is he then going to go to Korea? And then that begins to look like a really long, unwieldy trip. I mean, it's hard for me to believe that Trump on his first Asia trip would go to five countries. I mean, that's just, that's just backbreaking in terms of uh, the length of the trip. So, um, yeah, big open question. But if he does agree to do it, there would be an interesting sequence of interactions in 2017. It means Trump and she would see each other in July at the G20 in Germany, and then again a couple months later. So that sequence, if they put it together, actually would have the ability of making real progress on economic issues because Trump could sort of hold out the prospect of, you know, of having good meetings on whether or not China was really willing to play ball on the economic side. In other words, sort of give them greater incentive to reduce, to produce less piecemeal economic outcomes and more, and produce more substantial ones like major market liberalization.
Yeah, I think Evan's right. This, but this, the president hasn't committed, uh, to my knowledge, uh, to go to either the East Asia Summit or APEC. Um, APEC and Vietnam East Asia Summit in Manila. He uh, he will have to go to Japan. I think um, this will be after the South Korean election. There will be new government in place. So nowadays you can't go to Japan and not go to Korea. So Evan's talking. He's right when he talks about a big, big trip. And I wonder if they do it in in the China leg of this in 2017. There are multiple opportunities for bilaterals with uh, President Xi um, and. Uh, I, Evan, I'm sure had the same experience. Getting a president to leave, we're probably talking eight days at least. I think with travel for exactly. that agenda. And you know, I, I don't know if Evan had this experience, but you know, I'd go to Karl Rove or others and make the case for an extra day or two in Asia, and he'd pull out this calendar. Um, and he was one of the few who had a, of everything the president had to do. And um, you're talking about setting aside healthcare or a major drive through the Midwest or some domestic political agenda with giant constituencies behind it. Um, so I, I would bet against a China trip uh, at the end of the year, but, but we'll see. Maybe he'll find traveling abroad is playing well for him and he'll want to do it. Hmm. Where did I get the impression that they had agreed to 2017? Was that, was that the Chinese who said that? I don't know. Not at a future date. They were quite specific about 2017. Let's open the uh, the call to our participants. We've got a very illustrious group of participants here. So, uh, Wendy, please open the line to uh, to callers. Thank you. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. If you find your question has been answered, you may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. And we will take our first, <clears throat> pardon me, question from Earl Carr with Momentum Advisors. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thank you, uh, Evan, and, and my great, great, um, great conversation. Um, I gather that um, President Trump had inf- had spoken to. Uh, Shinzo Abe both prior to uh, his meeting with Xi and also after he met with Xi Jinping. How significant is that and and how would you define kind of U.S.-Japan relations in context to the the recent visit with Xi? Um, Let me start. It's it's a good question and and in my view, and I think everyone would agree, a, a successful China policy depends on Beijing understanding that your relationship with your key allies um, is not up for negotiation, that that's where the strategy starts. And the Abe-Trump summit um, at Mar-a-Lago was a a success for Prime Minister Abe in large part because he was ready and the Trump team largely wasn't, but but the outcome was important. And um, I think part of the reason that this summit with Xi Jinping was more successful than some might have expected because there was a pretty strong signal that, um, that, that you know, alliance has come first, uh, not to the detriment of China-U.S. relations necessarily, but, but certainly not um, as a secondary variable that will be decided by the U.S. and China. And, um, and the outcome of the summit sort of reinforced that. Um, and the fact that, they, uh, that the president called um, Abe um, and that um, – uh, he didn't. He didn't say or do anything in this summit, as the Japanese and other allies feared, that 
in any way would remove the glow from the successful meeting that Abe had. And I think that's pretty reassuring. And I think it also reflects the increasing professionalization, if you will, the in increasing importance of um, uh, McMaster's and others, um, Mattis uh, and Tillerson, who all have this view. Um, and it, it, it's a good sign. Um, you know, this might have gone differently in the views of some people in, in the region, but it came out, I think, uh, about right. Next question. Our next question comes from Max Kwok with the New York Times. Please go ahead. Hello. Uh, good morning, guys. Um, so, so President Xi's visit to Mar-a-Lago, the so-called Winter White House, is not a state visit. But then she reciprocated by extending a state visit to Trump. I was wondering, generally speaking, how this usually got negotiated back in the Bush and Obama administration? Thanks. Uh, how does what get negotiated? Whether it's a state visit, how, I think. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, let's see. Well, <laughs> normally what happens is uh, if the U.S. is interested in extending a state visit, you extend a state visit. Um, you know, and normally what happens is sort of at, early on in any administration, sort of the first visit usually is a usually is a state visit. I mean, things like Mar-a-Lago and Sunnylands are sort of, have become their own unique basket of meetings. So um, as sort of a get to know you, you know, an icebreaker, so to speak. So the fact that the Chinese extended Trump an invitation for a state visit doesn't remotely surprise me. I mean, that's just sort of the normal, natural cadence of the relationship. And I'm sure what that means is if Trump goes this year after his state visit, He'll then invite Xi Jinping in 2018 for a state visit, um, and that there'll probably be a few meetings between those on the margins of different multilateral meetings. So there's no great sort of mystery or secret or you know involved there. You know, it's an interesting question because this is, after all, a Republican administration. Uh, this is Mike Green, and um, the, uh, the the previous Republican administrations, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Evan, I don't think ever did a state visit um, for a Chinese for a Chinese leader. Um, George Herbert Walker Bush would have liked to, but he couldn't uh, because of the Tiananmen uh, obstacle. Um, uh, Reagan didn't, and uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. And George W. Bush gave all the bits and pieces, and in fact, the negotiations over protocol were excruciating. Uh, because it was very important for Hu Jintao to demonstrate at home that he got at least the same status as Jiang Zemin did under under uh, President Clinton. So we were negotiating how many steps he would climb, how many flags there would be, how many you know cannons would be fired, and all this stuff. Um, in retrospect, may not have even been worth it. It was it was such a a, 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 a long process. Although I think. I think uh, Evan would agree with this experience. In general, the Chinese side is willing to trade a bit of substance to get protocol. They care an awful lot about how this looks. Um, it was interesting to me, though, that um, so that's about the U.S. extending a state visit. The Chinese side, you know, uh, it's fairly straightforward. It was interesting to me that um, she, you know, accepted and apparently accepted gladly the invitation to Mar-a-Lago. I think that was driven by 
again, comparison with, in this case, Abe and how China would look domestically uh, compared with, you know, their rival Japan. And of course, Abe got a, you know, 36 holes of golf and two full days in Mar-a-Lago. But um, but it was a bit risky, I think, because, you know, she is in the middle of an anti-corruption campaign, uh, you know, a, a lavish golf course, fancy restaurants, not exactly the image he would want to project. And I see that most of the coverage is focused on the protocol and the flags and the appearance of the couples at the elegant doorway of the resort and so forth, and not a lot about, uh, as the Japanese press covered it, all the you know, beautiful golf courses and luxury at Mar-a-Lago. So the protocol does matter. And, um, you know, we'll, this was not a, I don't think the White House even called it a summit, let alone a state visit. So in some ways, they may be a bit more Republican uh, after all. Um, the Chinese will pull out all the stops, of course, and show China's power um, in all the protocol when uh, the president goes to Beijing. Mike, can I ask you something? I, I can't remember if you were at the NSC during, you know, Hu Jintao's, uh, you know, visit here. But what do you think the Bush administration got for not giving him a full state visit? When he, was it 06 that he came? He came in April 06. It was right after I negotiated that one, and then I left in January and uh, and watched it from the from the, from the lawn. <laughs> um, you know, Dennis, was, Dennis was uh, senior director then. Dennis was senior director, and it went a little off the rails, if you'll recall. Dennis Wilder. Not, not, not Dennis's fault. Um, it was nothing huge in terms of protocol, but it was little things. They, you know, I spent, as you, I'm sure, did two Evan hours um, resolving issues, which were very often protocol demands of the Chinese side. So we got little things um, that mattered uh, to us, whether it was um, the um, – uh, I can't, I don't want to say too much about it, but suffice it to say that we, the pre- President Bush, I don't know your experience, Evan, President Bush, we found over time that Chinese were less and less willing to talk about um, specific human rights cases. So we would, um, we would, uh, re- the President would raise them and then he would say, my staff is going to follow up, who should he talk to? And sort of arranging those kinds of follow up discussions. So nothing earth moving, but important issues that we were able to advance. Um, on, on, in different fronts, um, which, you know, we traded in effect protocol. I mean, uh, it was a tactical game mostly. It, it didn't change the overall relationship. Right. Hey, Mike, I just uh, found very quickly there's um, it, apparently in 1985, President Reagan extended a state visit for then Chinese President Li Shenyan. So, uh, okay. one. Okay. The magic of the internet machine. So there is one case, right. but. But, it, but they're the exception, really. I mean, there you have what's that, 35 years or so. So, would you, what would, if exception. you were, if Trump was asking you for advice, Mike, what would you recommend? If Trump gets a state visit later this year, would you recommend that he extend a state visit or only under certain conditions? Only if he sort of, quote, got enough? Oh, gosh, there's so many um, variables that would affect that. Um, it will be harder for Donald Trump to sell a state visit to his base, um, number one. Um, it would depend on how well relations were going with our allies. Um, if if the, the, the Japanese, the Koreans, the Australians care less about the protocol, but in India, if they all felt that the status that they received from the administration was sufficient, that they would be confident uh, we weren't demoting them in our geopolitical view, 
um, then you'd have more room. Um, but I suspect that the, the battle rhythm of U.S.-China relations over the coming year or two will not make for uh, a state visit in the U.S. Because I think this, I, this summit set a good tone, but I think the relationship's going to get tougher over the next six months to a year on trade, on North Korea, and we haven't talked about it, but the South China Sea as well. And I think they will find it tough to do this. And if, uh, and if they do, it's not going to be in the first year or two would be my expectation. Mm-hmm. Next question. Yes, we have a question from Peter Wolf with Time Warner. Please go ahead. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen, for this fascinating discussion. Um, I have a question or a series of questions regarding the PACOM deployment. Um, do you think that it's overly provocative? Um, do you think it's a mistake um, that it's too too much of a step up, but too much escalation at this at this at this stage? Um, then, what do you think the Chinese reaction has been and will be to that? Will they will they see that as success, this act as excessive? And then finally, um, comment on, is it an absurd idea to think that uh, the Trump administration is doing this, has done this, in order to uh, provoke uh, a reckless act on the behalf of the uh, North Koreans that we can respond to? Thank you. Uh, it's Mike. I, um, I think this deployment was the result of the commander uh, of our Pacific Forces, Harry Harris, um, uh, you know, Secretary of Defense um, Mattis, McMaster's at the National Security Council, um, and of course Tillerson, but I think these these military people I just mentioned all know each other. They're well aligned. Um, They know how to deal with so-called gray zone challenges, areas where you're showing force and trying to dissuade bad behavior but don't want to cross the line and get into a into a war so i doubt very much that this is designed to promote uh, or provoke a north korean reaction i think the naval the 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 battle group uh, carl vinson uh may have something to do with it with the fact that the last north korean missile test was of what they call their polaris which is supposed to be a submarine uh based uh missile um this pretty much shows we dominate the ocean um, and I think the signal inevitably is at China as well to show that um, when the administration says it will be unilateral, that doesn't mean unilateral military strike, but they're willing to um, to, to show some muscle to, to demonstrate that they mean it. Um, I, I very much doubt, as we were saying earlier, this was directed by Steve Bannon or the president or somebody, um, because I just can't see the military professionals we're talking about accepting that. Just don't see it. This is Evan. I, I I largely agree with Mike's assessment. Next question. And our final question comes from Mi Ling Su with Human Rights in China. Please go ahead. Mi Ling Su, your line is open. Hello, can you hear me? Yep. Hello. Yes. yes. Um, we read in a Xinhua Chinese language report of April 7, citing Xi Jinping, saying, we have 1,000 reasons to maintain good relations with the United States, and we don't have one good reason for worsening this relations. Um, 
I, you know, Xinhua probably would not cite Xi Jinping uh, saying this if it were not true, and Xi Jinping would never have said such thing if he did not mean it. Um, that uh, that if if there weren't deep political reasons, at least domestically, in saying that. I wonder if uh, the speakers can share their view whether this kind of um, positioning uh, on the Chinese part is felt within the um, administration and that, in fact, the United States uh, is in a, uh, if this were true, a great strategic advantage to get what the United States wants. This is Evan. Um, the way I interpret that kind of phrase, that, that phrase, and there were many different um, formulations the Chinese used in their Xinhua readout, the Remnerbao readout, is basically they're trying to project an image of managing effectively a very complicated relationship that has elements of cooperation and competition. So I think that that, that phrasing by Xi is all about demonstrating to his people that he's dealing with this new, different, unpredictable actor that doesn't seem to, um, that she wants to uh, effectively shape. And, um, and that this summit was about doing that. And that's one of the reasons why I think the, you know, the summit net-net was pretty successful because from a Chinese perspective, they've been able to, you know, sort of shape Trump, Trump's instincts and get him off this zero-sum view focused on a confrontational approach. Um, now, of course, the question is, do the Chinese believe that they have succeeded in this enterprise, or do they realize that uh, all they've really done is kick the can down the road on the big questions of uh, trade in North Korea? So I, I see framing like that as a way to you know, shape the administration and signal what their goal is um, more than anything else. Mike? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, there has been this debate among the China watchers about whether um, Deng is and Deng Xiaoping's um, more careful approach to the U.S. is now dead and that in the era of Xi Jinping, we have a more nationalistic and assertive China. And um, my sense is that Xi Jinping still um, has at least one hand firmly holding on to the rail of, of Dungism and Dung's approach to the world and to the U.S. Um, and that the big difference is um, she has um, embraced this idea of the Thucydides trap, the, the idea that um, rising powers inevitably clash and have war with status quo powers, and that it's very important to avoid that, that there's no reason why China should confront the U.S. But in this new formulation, it's mostly incumbent on the U.S. to avoid confrontation. And China will do some things at the margins, but the, the, the power change, and in particular this idea that this new, there's a new trajectory to the power dynamics between us and China, mean it's the U.S. side that has to help avoid the Thucydides trap by accommodating China's larger strategic interests, even as China may accommodate us on some specific economic uh, or other issues. Um, I don't think that's going to be the operating assumption for this administration uh, or has been for the past two administrations. But I think in that larger kind of philosophical or historical view of um, 
the trajectory of the relationship, uh, within that lies a really fundamental gap between Washington and Beijing that this meeting did nothing to resolve, didn't try to resolve, that will come out. And I think the strong hand the U.S. has in this, uh, among other things, is we have you know very strong allies, and um, uh, you know we have things that will give us um, the home field advantage if we think about human rights and democracy, if we think about trade. And these are areas the administration has not yet um, taken as tools. Uh, in fact, they've attacked uh, trade, as you know, and they've been pretty quiet on human rights and democracy. They've done pretty well on allies. So anyway, the, the, the summit set a good tone, but underneath it all is a very different vision between at least Mr. Trump and Mr. Xi about where um, where the long-term trajectory is for U.S.-China relations and the whole distribution of power in the world. Mike, Evan, thank you so much for shedding enormous light on this meeting. I think this has been an extremely valuable 60 minutes, and uh, thank you for giving so willingly of your time. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Steve.